0: Well, uh, I'd invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to be primarily in verses 14 to 18 this morning. So, uh, as you draw near to the place in Scripture where we're going to be sitting, uh, I want to talk to you about the drawing of tribal lines. Now, we do things that make fun of this or make jokes about this all the time. So we joke about it a lot, like with favorite football teams, right? So I remember uh, actually when when I came to the church here, I, I first started here, uh, it was like, uh, you know, I was interviewed and I asked a lot of questions from people in the congregation and, uh, you know, everybody had like, uh, you know, really wanted to know what was important and you know how how am I going to lead and uh, you know what am I committed to and all this stuff right and all of these really incredibly important questions and then like after the end of all of that had worked out the question was asked of of me and I said now really this is the most important question what is your favorite football team like who who uh, are you gonna cheer for, right? Because this is a divisive issue, right? So how do you how, like? And you ask that question because you want like how how do I know? Like I need to know how to treat you, right? Do I need to treat you as an enemy or do I need to treat you as a friend, right? And so so we laugh about that. That's funny, haha, uh-huh, right? And we have some Packers fans in the room, and we all uh, avowedly dislike them, right? Even though I'm not a Bears fan, I can join together with the Bears fans and go, yeah, I don't like the the Packers fans all that much. So. Uh, uh, so yeah, I threw you all under the bus, and that's okay. Um, so yeah, we do that, right? It's fun. It is it is whatever. Uh, another thing that we do this with, um, in fact, if you read about people who are getting, uh, who are going to get married, uh, one of the jokes that people often make is like, you have to make sure you agree about this first. And that is, uh, does the toilet paper come over the top of the roll, or does it come from the bottom of the roll, right, and this is a very important question, right, this could potentially end marriages, if you can't uh, get on the same page about this thing, right, so you have to figure out, does the toilet paper come from from the top or the bottom, I joke about this all the time, uh, and uh, so I talk all the time about how uh, this, we have this battle between Apple and Android, right, you can see right here, right, and uh, I frequently always make the very true point that Apple is superior, to Android, and that uh, does seem to upset, and I should probably stop talking because right now Zeke could shut down the live stream if he wanted to, and so he has a problem with that, right? Uh, Pineapple on pizza, right? You have some people who are like, yes, it's a really good thing, and some people who absolutely hate it, and we divide into lines over this, right? And so we get into this, uh, this place where we say, you know what, if you don't align with us, then we have a real problem with you on these silly issues. We joke about, you know, having to, like, question the entire character of the person, right? We say things like, oh, I can't trust anything you say anymore, or, like, I guess we can't be friends anymore, or, you know, like, if, if you, if you're that football fan, then all of your life choices must be awful, right? Uh, so these are funny examples, but we joke like this, and, and we find it funny for a reason, and that's because we actually do this with real things, like... Like say things like, if that's your choice, if you're going to choose that, then uh, everything you do must be awful, right? Like, it, it's funny. We laugh at this because there actually are certain things that we do this with. Uh, the, kind of the first and most prominent example in my head is like political perspectives, right? Like, if you hold an opposing perspective from me, Right. Then uh, if I'm really uh, kind of entrenched in my political perspective, I might think that because you hold an opposing perspective or a different view of things that I then know everything I need to know about you. Right. Like if you differ, then I've already made my judgment. I know what I need to know. Or how about this? Like COVID precautions right? How do you handle COVID precaution? Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Are you vaxxed? Are you not vaxxed? Do you carry your card around with you wherever you go? Do you ask people if they're vaxxed? Like, if you, like, do any one of those things, then you know what? I can put you into a box, and now I can identify everything that I could possibly need to know about you based on any of those things, right? How about uh, your views of ethnicity, or gender, or immigration, or fill in the blank, and you express your viewpoint, and everybody around you goes, oh, you believe that? Right? Like, you agree with those people? Right? How can I trust you? Like, you, if you believe that, then you must be a, an all-around horrible person. Right? So, This is like the reality of the moment that we live in. And things have not always been like this in our country, in our culture, but they have gotten more and more intense to where we can uh, kind of uh, move into our own groups, into our own tribes, and then uh, try to identify people based on the tribe that they're with, and then uh, determine everything that we need to know about them ahead of time. So out of this moment has like arisen a, a deep amount of outrage out of this moment for what it's worth has arisen uh, cancel culture and cancel culture just for what it's worth is not something that happens in the progressive left uh, kind of end of things but uh, I actually think like fundamentalists were the first in America to do cancel culture right because we had book burning parties and CD burning parties and all of this stuff right so so cancel culture has been around for a long time and it's something that people on all ends of spectrums do because there are views outside of their their perspective outside of their tribe that they don't want to have existing. Out of this moment has arisen great levels of intolerance for other human beings. So, so a lot of people talk about this, this phenomenon, and you've heard me kind of mention it a couple of times. So I just kind of want to identify it for us this morning. This is called tribalism. Tribalism is the human tendency to demand group loyalty and reject outsiders, Right? This is what we do with tribalism. So, you know what? Groups, they have values. And what they do is they invite people to align with those values. And by the way, that is not a bad thing. We do that at this church. Like, we're in a values development process because we are a group and we want to invite people to align with these values, right? But, but these groups morph into tribes when they begin demanding when they coerce and manipulate people into aligning with their values. Uh, tribes, they hyper-focus on behavior and uh, and whatever behavior would most promote the tribe's values and insist that every person in the tribe does everything that promotes the tribe's values. And then tribes actually, like, they carry out severe punishments when its members falter in promoting the values, right? Another thing, so, like, groups also have boundaries, for identifying who is a part of the group and who is not a part of the group. And for what it's worth, this is not a bad thing. Like, it's not a bad thing to have boundaries, but they morph into tribes when then they uh, create comparisons of greater than and less than. Because I have these uh, things that identify me, I must be better than everybody else. Right? When uh, tribes kind of become self-exalting utopias of, uh, the, we are the best people because we have all of these uh, characteristics. Right, and so as a result, what happens is that members of the tribe view people outside of the tribe as less than or unworthy. Right, so this can happen with uh, political parties or ideologies. This can happen with perspectives on gender and sexuality. Right, if you don't uh, align with this viewpoint, then uh, you must be a uh, not a great person. Right, uh, least we think that we're immune. This also happens within Christianity. Like, what were fundamentalist churches if they were not tribes that hyper-focused on behavior, carried out punishment when people didn't align, and passed judgment on outsiders? Right? So, so, this is a dark reality because, for several reasons, like, tribes at the end of the day, they're about identity, right? So, they give people a sense of common purpose, uh, they give people a sense of belonging, a sense of mission, they give people priorities, they give people a sense of meaning and significance, right? And people find all of that in a tribe... But then tribal lines and tribal identity uh, get used to justify all sorts of things that are actually unjustifiable, right? So uh, like hyper-controlling or modifying the flow of information in a tribe so that uh, you can control who does and does not hear certain truths. Uh, Silencing voices within the tribe who might not agree with the tribe or silencing voices making sure that people can't hear the criticisms coming from the outside. Uh, It can dehumanize and demonize everybody who's not a part of the tribe. Uh, It can result in acts of violence against those who don't align with the tribe. It can, like I've already talked about, result in coercion and manipulation to maintain tribal purity, right? So tribalism is focused on maintaining the influence of the tribe no matter the cost. So today, we are finishing up a series called Jesus in an Insidious World. So in John chapter 1, John gives us the picture of Jesus who is entering into a very dark world. There are dark realities everywhere in this world, and it's actually significant that Jesus has chosen to enter into this place, this place that is very dark. And so we've been using this word insidious, just as a reminder, insidious is something that is proceeding in a gradual and subtle way, but with harmful effects, So tribalism is insidious, right? It's not insidious because we organize ourselves into groups and these groups have certain boundaries and standards, right? Because Jesus had boundaries and standards for all sorts of things. That's not the group thing is not the insidious thing, but it's insidious really for two reasons. Uh, Tribalism is insidious because, number one, it, it requires devaluing the image of God in outsiders, right? So it judges, it creates categories of less than and greater than amongst people. It condemns people, uh, not simply by their actions, but uh, by, at certain times in history, their skin color, or by their nationality, or by the school of thought that they represent, or by uh, their lineage, or by their geography, or by their ability, right? And so then it promotes inhumane thought and action against people people who are not a part of that group it treats them as subhuman right so for what it's worth like you can see this in political pundits on tv and the way that they talk about people who represent the perspective of the other side right so like notice their tendency to use language that insults and demeans right to compare their opponents to the worst people in history. Like, I don't know about y'all, but 2021, like, in terms of the circumstances of the world and the way that we treat each other, as history goes, we're doing pretty well, right? But for some reason, we seem so concerned about comparing our opponents to the worst people that have ever lived in history, right? And occasionally... Those who are kind of the most deeply into their tribal identity, they openly mock and shame their opponents. They convince themselves, uh, perhaps even if they get deep enough into it, they convince themselves that an act of violence against people who represent the other perspective might actually be appropriate. Right Because given how awful the person or awful the situation that they have created is, that justifies my action so eventually you see this work out in uh, assassination attempts that we 've seen you know over the last hundred years, or uh, you see it work out in various kinds of riots that have occurred even over the last like three or four years right so so that is uh, it devalues the image of God in outsiders that 's the first insidious part of tribalism, but then the second part is that it actually requires concealing and altering reality for insiders, right? So uh, tribalism creates and tribes create alternative facts, right? How many times have you heard that phrase used over the course of the last four or five years, right? Because you have people on either side of a debate looking at each other and modifying facts to fit their viewpoint. It develops identity-shaping narratives, And then explains away all the challenges out there that might exist to that narrative. It conceals information about leaders of a movement that might cause damage to that movement. It hides under a veneer of kind of carefully crafted statements. And why does it do all this? Because at the end of the day, plain truth is threatening to the tribe. And there's a great fear that truth could end everything. Right, so, so perfect illustration of this. You have modern day cults. Uh, people end up joining cults because they get swayed by a particular leader or even the cause that the cult represents. And so uh, perhaps at one point truth eventually starts to come out uh, about the organization's leader and some problem that person is having or uh, some inconsistency within the cult. Right, So then what the leaders have to do is they need to build a narrative to make that problem make sense or explain it away in some way. Or they flat out lie about this thing that has been brought up. And this is all to maintain the influence with the, that they have with the people. And so they start out kind of with an illusion of good. Right? All tribes start out with the, the illusion of good because they give people a sense of identity, a, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. But before long, they morph into kind of having these requirements that require you to, to devalue the image of God and other people and, and require you to kind of ignore truth in order to maintain the integrity of the tribe. And so Jesus comes into a world full of tribes, and somehow he's supposed to meet us in the middle of this dark reality and provide an antidote to it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So I just want you to hear these words from John 1, 14 through 18. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So as we uh, dig into God's word this morning, would you please pray with me? (sighs) Jesus, I notice a tendency even in my own heart to align with certain things that would enable, and and certain perspectives and even certain people that would make me think that because I see things this way or because I do things this way, that I must be better than other people. Right, and that tendency towards tribalism exists, And Jesus, I ask that as you show us the goodness of who you are and what you're calling us to, that you would kill those tendencies inside of us. That you would help us to see how you are the antidote by your entering into this world. Convince our hearts, Holy Spirit, and make us open to the work that you want to do this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. So John 1.14 starts like this. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is, uh, this is an amazing statement for many reasons. But here's, here's kind of the primary reason that I want to focus on. Like I want, I want you to consider our tendency towards tribalism or, or even, even, like just take the idea of being a part of a group out of it for a second. Like even just consider our tendency to judge and avoid people who don't measure up to our standards right, our tendency to exclude others, our tendency to turn others into enemies, right? We do this all the time because we like to think, oftentimes, we like to think ourselves superior, right? We evaluate kind of from our perceived high throne of moral authority, right? This is we set ourselves up above other people. So that's our tendency. And then when we see other people kind of doing the same thing that we do, we just reinforce that tendency, right? But this passage, it tells us about the word. The word is the person who is a source of everything, right? So Garth read this morning as we were in worship, Garth read John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 about uh, the word who was at the beginning and everything was made through him, right? He is the source of everything. And like the fact that he is a word doesn't just mean that creation came from him, although that is certainly part of it. And it doesn't just mean that like all reality or truth came from him but that even he is the source of everything that is right, right? Like everything that is right and good comes from him. So you have the word kind of on one hand, and then you have human beings on the other hand, and kind of here's what I'm thinking. I should put these two, uh, weigh these two against each other. Like if there's anyone who gets to judge if there's anyone who gets to sit in the position of moral authority, right? if there's anyone who has a high throne from which to evaluate, it is certainly not us. Right? Like if anybody gets to sit in a place and evaluate and express outrage and exclude, like if you, if you weigh the two things against each other, but what does he do? Right? He doesn't other us. He doesn't burn us up. He doesn't express his outrage at this point, right? What does he do? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He becomes like us in order to be with us, right? So like under the sway of tribalism, we cannot stand those who oppose the tribe. Like We certainly couldn't imagine associating with them or spending time with them or getting to know them or seeing them as actual real human beings, but he so drastically contrasts us and that he associates with us. He comes to be like us to spend time with us. So uh, it goes on in verse 14 and it says this. It says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Right, so here is kind of the fundamental explanation for why the one who actually did kind of deserve to exclude and condemn and punish. Here's the explanation for why instead he came to dwell with us. Because his glory, right, like, and glory is kind of the whole composition of his character. His glory is full of grace. Right, like, And it's hard for us to kind of wrap our mind around the idea of glory when I read it in scripture. It's hard for me to be captured by it because I just don't have anything to compare it to in my experience, right? But glory is the essence, like the essence, what is core to his character. And so the core of the creator's character, the source of all things is this uh, son of God, it is full of grace. So this word grace, this word grace is a Greek word charis. And it simply means, like at its kind of most fundamental definition, it means generous kindness. Right, so, so we typically come up with like a very theological definition of grace uh, because grace actually does uh, oftentimes for us represent a theological reality uh, because it, it's used frequently in the context of forgiveness and salvation. Right, so uh, with forgiveness and salvation, we deserved one thing, but we got something far greater than what we deserved. Right, so we talk about that as being grace, and that indeed is a generous kindness of our God. Right, but that is like one significant example of a number of examples of what it means for God to express grace. And what we see, if, if that's just one example, what we see is that Jesus, the word, is actually full of generous kindness. Right, so like the one who actually deserved to condemn He instead associated with us to spend time with us, to let us spend time with him. And you know why? Because he is overflowing with generous kindness. Goes on in uh, verse 16, talks more about this grace. And it says, for from his fullness, right, from everything that he is made up of, we have received grace upon grace. So here's what's crazy. Like many of the things that we might build tribes around, at the end of the day, like they're not even bad things. Like sometimes we build tribes around things that, in and of themselves, are actually like could be pretty good, right? So you could, uh, like honoring God and uh, with your actions and having actions that honor God, like that is a really good thing that you would honor God with your actions. But if moral performance is the primary thing that you organize around, then you know what you will do if it's all about moral performance is that you will become intolerant of those who don't perform according to your standards. Right? Like, okay, so being intentional with how you educate your kids is a really good thing. Right? But there is a tendency for us to think that uh, with our group, the way that our group does things is the best. So whether it's homeschooling or public schooling or private schooling, you know, whatever it might be, like we might think that our way is the best way. And you know what? Because of that, we're going to refuse to associate with people who might uh, do things a different way, or we're at least going to always think them as less than or not making as good of decisions as we make. Right? Valuing your personal ethnic or cultural background is a really, really good thing. But when we make that primary, we can turn people from different backgrounds into enemies of us and call them less than because they're not like us, right? So what we do then is we take good things and organize ourselves around them and make them God things. And then with those good things, we create our own standards and rules and measurements. And from them, uh, we kind of use those to judge and exclude and condemn other people and exalt ourselves up as the authority. But then Jesus came to take people who actually didn't measure up, right? So, so, you know, whether or not our standards are right or just or whatever, like at the end of the day, we actually, like in all reality, we didn't measure up. So it's not like somebody doesn't measure up to a made up standard. No, there is a real standard that we did not measure up to. And Jesus came to make us who did not really measure up a part of his family. Right, so if you even go back a few verses, in verse twelve it says, uh, "Whoever received him gets the right to become a child of God." Right, gets the right to become a part of God's family, gets the opportunity for inclusion and acceptance and welcome and forgiveness, and this gets extended. This opportunity gets extended to every single person. Right, so oftentimes, which even this question is revealing of a particular tribal or, or tribal identity, right. But oftentimes, uh, the question gets raised about Jesus. Why does Jesus, you know, I love him. I like the things that he does. He seems like a really nice guy. But why does he have to be so intolerant? I think that's a crazy question. Like intolerant? Have you seen the rest of the world? Have you seen you and the way that you treat other people and the way that you think about other people? Jesus is anything but intolerant. Like, Jesus sets clear boundaries, yes. Jesus calls people to repentance, yes. But you know what? Jesus eats with people who hate him, too. Jesus uh, had his final meal with his betrayer at the table, knowing that he was going to be betrayed by that person. In fact, the, the last moment that Jesus saw his betrayer, knowing that he was getting ready to betray him, Jesus let his betrayer kiss him. Like he went to dinners with religious leaders who had corrupted the law that he was the source of. He spent time with people who were easily overlooked by the rest of the world. Like the fact, the fact that even an opportunity To be included in God's family would be extended to intolerant, impatient, self-exalting, selfish, tribal, uh, self-righteous people. Like, that is not intolerance. Like, that is a kindness far beyond what any person deserves. That's generous kindness on top of generous kindness. So, verse 17, it says this. And this is kind of the key verse that uh, helps to bring all of this together. Uh, It says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So uh, yes, like Jesus came into the world as grace and truth, but what does that offset? So we've been talking a lot this morning about tribalism and intolerance, how Jesus's grace offsets those things. But John actually hasn't for us kind of named tribalism and intolerance, right? But then verse 17 kind of brings this together. It gives us the significance. John kind of says in verse 17, like, this is why grace and truth matters. Because without them, we would only have law. Right? So so John makes this point about the law of Moses. and, And because here's what is true about the law of Moses. The law by itself was incomplete. It needed a fulfillment. It pointed in a particular direction, but the direction that it was pointing in was unclear. And so as a result, what you have is just law, and groups of people started reading and organizing themselves just around the law. That's all they had, right? And what that, like, what that resulted in is that the law became an end in itself, right? So so actually in the first century, in the time of Jesus, you have identifiable tribes based on how people deal with and use and implement the law. Right, You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, right? They, those are the ones that we read about in scripture and have the most information about in the text. But uh, at the same time, you also have this group of Jewish people called the Essenes, right? You have a group of Jewish people called Zealots, right? And they all kind of take the law and they organize themselves around it without considering what it might be pointing to. And each group, each of those groups thought that they had the market cornered right like they had this thing figured out. Each group considered themselves to be the moral authority. Each group kind of established their influence and got people involved in their tribe. And each group uh, kind of together learned the kind of people that they should tolerate and the kind of people that they shouldn't tolerate, who they should avoid, what kind of actions are worthy of praise and what actions are unworthy, what standards should be honored, right? Who do we pay homage to uh, in order to maintain our influence? How ought we to dress? How ought we uh, to, to spend our time? What kind of people should we spend our time with right each of those groups came up with all of those definitions and they organized themselves around the law and because they had done that they actually missed the point of the law and instead opted for tribalism and intolerance so John tells us you know what the law came through Moses and this is this is what the result of people who had organized themselves around an incomplete law did but then when Jesus came, gosh, we finally understood, right? It's like, it's like, as if everything came together because all we saw was kind of this tendency towards tribalism and intolerance, but then Jesus came and we finally understood grace and truth came with him, right? So remember this kind of first requirement of tribalism that we talked about. It devalues the image of God in outsiders, but then Jesus comes and what does he do, right? He gives dignity where dignity was being denied. He welcomes people and spends time with them. He honors the image of God in everyone by extending to them the opportunity to be included in the family of God. So uh, kind of our first point that we're sitting with this morning is this. Tribes devalue the other, but Jesus overflows with unexpected kindness towards all others. So then, uh, there's another very important piece to this that we haven't considered, because we really looked at grace, but, but Jesus is full of two things. He's full of grace and truth, right? So remember, we identified tribes as kind of also being insidious because of what they do to insiders, right? Uh, to outsiders, they devalue the image of God, but to insiders, they kind of alter information and reality. They conceal things. They manipulate, right? They alter facts. So John 1.14, just to get a reminder, uh, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word truth is, uh, in the Greek, it's aletheia. And uh, it simply means, like at its core, you can think of truth as like, oh, I need to tell you something or I need to give you a dose of hard truth or something like that. But actually, truth at its core means uh, you're not concealing anything. Like there's nothing that's being hidden. Like, it is reality as it actually is, right? So, so at the end of the day, tribes and tribalism, they are threatened by truth because in order for the tribe to stay unified, it needs to make sure that the tribe is always ultimate in the, the member's eyes. So when facts come out that would delegitimize the tribe or call tribal leaders into question, what happens is you get messaging control. You get manipulation of information. But Jesus, it's a Jesus does none of that. Like, he just gives reality as it actually is. Right? So, so like, there's this interesting question. Like, what is it about Jesus? Because he is, like, an important leader. He calls people to follow him. He gathers a lot of people around himself. Like, what is it about Jesus that isn't threatened by truth? Because tribes, like, they're trying to, to unify around something that they have made ultimate in the eyes of their tribal members. And the problem with that is, truth will always reveal something else to be more ultimate than the thing that they've organized around. Right? This is why they—you can't have truth in a tribe. Right? That's why they need to control messaging. But you know what? Here's why Jesus isn't threatened by truth, because he is ultimate. Right? He is the Word. He is the source of everything he is the one for which all things were created which means that no amount of truth will be able to show him to be anything other than what he already is right he is the word he's the creator of the universe and so as a result he can call people to follow him and be fully transparent and fully authentic and there are no facts that will come out that will threaten the truth of who he is he can call people to follow him because reality will always reveal him to be worth following. No fact will come out that will ever jeopardize the reality that he is worth following. So in verse uh, 18, John makes this point with even more clarity. In verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. Right? Like uh, all of those people who think that they should be able to stand in some sort of moral authority, like none of them have actually like, gotten even close to seeing God. But you know what? The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made God known. Right? So, so Jesus is full of truth to this extent. When people saw Jesus, they could know God. Right? When people talked to Jesus, they talked to God. He is God. So, so these various religious groups, what did they do? When Jesus came on the scene, the one who actually is ultimate, um, they made up lies about Jesus. They called him a blasphemer very publicly. Uh, they said that he drove out demons by the power of Satan. Uh, they manipulated Roman authorities in order to be able to interrogate him. They convinced crowds that he was a common criminal. Uh, they bought, they took, kind of brought Jews and Romans together to mock him and carry out his execution. Why did they do all of this? Because the truth that he brought endangered their tribe. Right, like, oh, things like God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Or uh, Jesus insisting that maybe the motives of religious leaders are showing them to be self-serving and, uh, when they give their money with pomp. Or uh, maybe that uh, the teaching that these religious leaders bring uh, kind of misses the heart of the law. Or maybe that uh, their Messiah has come with miracles and signs and is the son of God, and his goal is actually to get people to follow him. Right, like all of these things that Jesus said and brought up, at every level it threatened their power. It all said, you know what, something else has to become ultimate now. And their tribe was more important to them than truth. So when John says Jesus is full of truth, what he's saying is that in all of those other places, you get concealing and hidden things, but in Jesus you get full disclosure, Right, Jesus doesn't play at concealing information. Jesus doesn't manipulate the messaging. Jesus doesn't change the facts. In all reality, like He doesn't require us to do any of that either. Right? In fact, like we are given the freedom to come to Jesus just as we are. Right? To confess our sins to uh, and to be welcomed, being fully known by Him, uh, kind of with all of our gunk and everything. And in fact, Jesus is so full of truth that He knows when I'm trying to be something that I'm not. Right? He gives me the opportunity to meet him as I am and he shows me fully who he is. And so, uh, so here's the truth about Jesus this morning. Tribes, they require manipulation and concealing. That's how they function. It's, they cannot survive without it, but Jesus freely shows reality as it actually is. And he's not threatened by it. Okay, so what? We're gonna deal with these uh, realities right now. So um, number one, Tribalism is attractive and we need to resist it, right? So we like the certainty that our tribes provide. Especially when they begin to align with our perspectives in certain ways. Like we really like having very clear lines of black and white. But what we need to be wary of is anytime uh, our tribes would cause us or even kind of our perspectives or the people that we agree with. That they might cause us to look at uh, other groups of people and point to them as those people. And, and make those people out to be the problem, because you know what those people are also people that Jesus came to extend life to, right so we need to be very wary of uh it it's okay to have perspectives and to even be interested in expressing those perspectives and in trying to uh to better like grasp and better advocate for uh people to see it your way like there's no uh problem with that at the core but when your perspective and the people who help to justify you in it would cause you to look at other people made in the image of God and exclude them and demean them and condemn them and not like them and not want to spend time with them and not reach out to them people who by the way Jesus has called you to love because they are your neighbors in this world That's what we need to be wary of. So tribalism is very attractive to us, but we need to resist it. Uh, Number two, refuse to know anything about those who you have not spent considerable time with. Right, um, so tribes give us markers and measuring sticks and standards by which we can evaluate people. And we use those to make the smallest observations of people the way they use language, uh, the way that they operate, the things that they show up to or don't show up to, right? And so we can allow our tribes and our markers and our measurements to, without seeing or understanding very much about a person, to go, you know what? I think I know everything about that person that I already need to know. And when we do that, we reduce that person into something less than the image of God. We essentially say that person is entirely that thing that they did or that thing that they said, and so they are not worthy of my time and attention. But the attitude that we saw with Jesus is that, like, even the worst people are worthy of his time and attention, right? So so being Jesus' people, the call on us is to carry his generous kindness to all the people that we would come across, And so we need to be very careful of our perspectives, especially when they could lead us to say, you know what, I know everything I need to know about that person. Did you sit at a table with them? Did you have a meal with them? Did you share considerable time with them? Do you know what's going on in their lives and the kind of circumstances that they're having to face? Because that person is more than the perspective that they represent or even the tribe that you think they're a part of. They're made in the image of God. And then uh, number three. So this is where this can maybe get a little confusing, so I want to clarify something. For what it's worth, Jesus still has a tribe, right? The difference is that, like, we don't operate the same way as every other tribe, right? So Jesus, like, we are, to a degree, an exclusive group because Jesus' message is an exclusive message, right? Like, trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We are called to repent and believe in our response to him, right? That is a very exclusive message, right? And we, like, the only people who can be included in our tribe are people who cross that line, right? Like, this is what it means to be a part of the church. But here's the difference. Every other tribe finds people to exclude and condemn. And we are called to be the people who welcome and invite and see the image of God in the other, and extend grace and kindness to you, and love our neighbors, and love our enemies, Right. And, uh, take, you know, if, you're, uh, if your if you enemy or you, you, the soldier takes you and he says, hey, I need to borrow your cloak for one mile and uh, you're walking with him, and he's taking you prisoner. Then you, you need to go with him two miles. You need to share the shirt off your back with him. Right. You need to turn the other cheek. If you uh, get hit, you offer the other one. Right. Like all of these ideas about how you treat people who mistreat you, uh, Jesus people are called to carry those things out. Right? We respond to others in a very different way than the rest of the world does. Right? So when we embody what Jesus embodied, we carry generous kindness with us. Right? So what this means is that as those who carry generous kindness, it means that we sit with people and interact with people who the various tribes that we might be inclined to listen to tell us not to interact with. Right? It means that we pray for those who abuse us. It means that we forgive those who hurt us. It means that we spend time with other people who our tribes tell us to reject. Right? And then, then in the midst of those situations, at the same time, we embody truth. Right? We tell people the truth about who Jesus is and what he did. Uh, we become honest about our failures. And you know what? We don't have to hide them because Jesus isn't threatened by our failures like we live openly and authentically with other people. We fully disclose all the things that Jesus has fully disclosed to us. We leave the decision in their hand, and we keep loving them no matter what, right? And if they tell us we, they don't want us around, that might hurt, but we don't turn them into enemies. We don't turn them into hated people. We just leave, right? So, this mix of grace and truth, this is what we're called to represent. And this is how we're going to close this morning. I just want you to look at uh, John chapter 4 with me. Uh, we're not going to look at the, at the whole thing, but I, I want you to listen to this mix of grace and truth as Jesus sits with this woman at the well. So uh, in John 4 5, he comes to a town of Samaria. For what it's worth, Samaria is not a good place for a Jewish person to be. Already, like we encounter a reality that uh, tribes have informed. Because tribes have informed that Jewish people do not interact with Samaritans. You don't go to them. You don't spend time with them. You will soil yourself. You will dirty yourself if you spend time with that person. You will mark yourself as unclean. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So at that time, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, this person that his tribe had told him to reject, to avoid, to to walk around, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, she is amazed. How is it? This is is the effect of grace, right? Because it's unexpected and it's generous and it's coming out of nowhere. And so she says, how is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would not have asked him. And he would have given you, or sorry, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus, as they interact more, Jesus goes on and says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So now you start to see as Jesus has met her with grace, he starts to bring truth into her. Starts to show her, I'm the one who satisfies what all these thirsts are pointing to. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come to draw water. So then Jesus takes the truth a level deeper, right? And he has still been fully gracious this whole time. These things do not compete with each other. They work in tandem with each other. So when she says, give me this water, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband to come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus meets her in the midst of this circumstance and he is fully honest with her and he fully knows her and he meets her with this level of unexpected grace and then they have this whole conversation where Jesus goes, you know what? I'm the Messiah who is coming and you know what happens after that? She believes and she tells other people because Jesus resisted the tribalism of his day and entered into her situation as grace and truth. So church, may we be those who resist and do away with tribalism so that we might, as as Jesus carried grace and truth to her, that we might carry grace and truth into our spheres of influence. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, you have called us to be like you. And that is an overwhelming call and expectation and responsibility and yet nonetheless you don't remove the call from us yes you give us grace and you give us freedom but but um lord my ask is that you would create this longing for us to see more more of you uh, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our relationships, more of you uprooting out of us uh, kind of our own self-righteousness and self-exaltation and the sense that our, of moral authority that our tribes give us to stand in judgment of other people and to sit and carry grace with us and share simple truth about who you are. Be open to being fully known and not afraid of being fully known to be open to making you fully known. Lord, that you might bring life to people. That you might uh, undo the tribalism that they're experiencing. I can't help but think how the Samaritan woman was inclined to view Jewish people after she met this Jewish person who extended her grace in this moment. So Lord, would you shape and form us away from the tribalisms of this world and into the grace and truth that you have come to bring this fullness that we have the opportunity to receive from. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to hear these words from Colossians chapter 3. In the book of Colossians, uh, the, the Apostle Paul has built up uh, kind of this whole argument. This is who Jesus is, and this is a kind of what the, the life that results from knowing Jesus. And then he kind of gets into uh, now how Jesus is breaking down walls between people, right? And so uh, he says, do not lie to one another. He's talking about the interactions that we have. He says, don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self with its, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Right? And he says, in this renewal process, you know what? You don't lose the realities that have come along with those tribal identities that, that have shaped you. But now something is more important than all of those tribal identities. And it's an identity in Jesus. So this is what Paul says when you have that identity in Jesus. He says, here and these people who are being renewed and have the new self on, here there is not Greek and Jew. Here there is not circumcised and uncircumcised. Here there is not barbarian, Scythian. Here there is not slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Alliance Bible Church, it has been a joy to worship with you this morning. Thank you so much for worshiping with us.